I am keenly aware that we live in a day and age where feelings matter more than facts. Meaning people's feelings are the chief measure of what constitutes love. So if a person's feelings might get hurt by something that we say or do, then we're more likely to think this probably isn't the most loving thing to do. So we can easily be held hostage by a person's feelings. Even though our words and actions are motivated by love and kindness, they might get rejected as hateful and hurtful. Because the bottom line of love in our day and age is not truth or principle or what's biblical or godly or even holy and righteous and good. But instead, what makes them feel loved. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because we need to let the Bible shape our worldview, including how we think about facts and feelings. And right now, we live in a nation filled with victims who are quick to cancel anyone and everyone who disagrees with them. So even if the person sharing is only interested in our greatest good, we cancel them because we don't like what they're saying, which is not good. So we as followers of Christ should be gloriously different. And why is that? Well, as we heard last week, because we have an everlasting Father who created us, provides for us, and promises to protect us for all eternity. So according to the Bible, we're created by God, chosen by God, loved by God, forgiven by God, accepted by God, guided by God, and strengthened by God. So God is more important to us than anyone else in the universe. So we should be a people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, just like James says. And if that's true in how we relate to people in this world, then how much more should that be true when we're listening to the Bible? Because the author of Hebrews is going to speak some pretty hard truth this morning. In fact, the title of my sermon is Warning Against Apostasy. And as you know, apostasy by definition is the abandonment of what a person believes. So this is a warning against rejecting your faith in Christ. That starts with an accusation. That these believers are dull of hearing. That they're sluggish in their diligence to pursue Christ. So you could easily react to that by saying the author is not being Loving, because he's hurting your feelings or because you don't like what you're hearing. And yet these are some of the most loving, most caring, most helpful things that he could possibly say. And I believe is saying because he loves them and he wants what's best for them. So that's where we're going this morning in the book of Hebrews. A loving warning against apostasy. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 5. It's on page 1003. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I also encourage you to have my outline in front of you. Three points this morning, a word of rebuke, a word of warning, a word of encouragement. Now as you're turning, let me remind you, the author of Hebrews has already declared that Jesus is greater than the angels, 
that he's greater than Moses, that he's greater than the Old Testament priests. But in the midst of those declarations, he's consistently warned us to not neglect so great a salvation that's only in Jesus. So consider him, believe in him, rest in him, and fix your hope in him. And yet, if you think about it, we've never been told what the exact problem is until this morning. So if you would follow along as I begin reading Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. The author says about this, referring back to verse 11 or verse 10, and Jesus being a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. How as we jump in, our first section is titled, number one, a word of rebuke. Because up to this point, the author hasn't explicitly said what the problem is. Now, he's certainly warned them. Chapter 2, verse 1, he said, pay close attention, lest you drift away. Chapter 3, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So it's clear the author's terribly concerned about these people. But until now, he's only given the cure, not the diagnosis. Meaning he hasn't explicitly said what's wrong. But finally, here it is. So after introducing the idea of a glorious salvation that only comes through an eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the author seems to take a deep breath. Maybe even size a little. Then he says about this, we have much to say. And he will say, he's going to pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. But he takes a break. And he says, but it's hard to explain. Since here's the problem. You have become dull of hearing. The author's going to come back to it again at the end of our passage. In fact, just look forward to chapter 6, verse 11. The author says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. Sluggish is the same word as dull. So you may not be sluggish or dull or immature in your faith, but instead imitators of those who through faith and and patience inherit the promises. So there's the problem. They're a dull of hearing. They're sluggish. They're immature in their faith. And what's the opposite of that? Well, it's being diligent to turn the message of hope into the assurance of hope. So imitating the people of faith, anticipating Hebrews chapter 11 and the hall of faith, 
where you hear the promises of God with your ears and you respond to them with faith in your hearts. So dull of hearing doesn't mean that there's something wrong with their ears, right? It's not an earwax issue. It's a heart issue. So the heart is not eager to embrace the promises of God and turn them into faith and patience. Instead, the word comes to the ears, makes its way to the heart, but it doesn't find the heart soft and receptive, but hard and stony, or at least moving in the direction of being hard and stony. So to be dull of hearing means there's no passion for the word of God, no love for Jesus, no cherishing of Christ, no zeal for the things of God. And if that doesn't change, then there will be no inheritance of eternal life. So at best, they're immature. That's why the author says, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. Notice the basic principles of the oracles of God. That is the fundamental truths about who God is and how we can be reconciled to him in and through the Lord Jesus. So number one, you should already be teachers, meaning you already been taught the basic principles of salvation in Christ. You, you learned it, you believed it, and you've embraced it as Christians. So by this point, you should be teaching others also. You should be teachers. You should also be mature. Number two, eating solid food, not drinking milk. Verse 13 says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, meaning the spiritually mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I can't help but remember when Gabby first started walking. That time we lived in this little two-bedroom condo with a kitchen, dining room, and living room all connected with a hallway. So essentially a track for, for Gabby to run around over and over again, lap after lap, until I'd ask her as she's coming around to lap, hey, Gabby, do you want your bottle? And immediately she'd spin around. She'd come running back. So she'd run around, happy as can be, oblivious to the world, until I said, do you want your bottle? Then she'd come running. Why is that? Well, because little kids love their milk. They love it. They crave it. They long to have it. And that's true of every child. And yet that's not true of my kids now, is it? Because they've matured. They don't want milk anymore. They want steak. And they want me to grill it, right, on my back porch. That's, they're not interested in milk anymore. They want a wonderful, beautiful steak. Because they've grown. They've matured. And that looks like something, doesn't it? Verse 14 says, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So when Christians possess spiritual maturity, they have the capacity for spiritual reasoning and spiritual discernment, the ability to see how one doctrine connects to another doctrine and can logically apply those doctrines, put them together in order to navigate daily life. 
So what's the problem? These Christians are dull of hearing. So the author is calling and commanding them, A, to not be dull of hearing, but instead, B, to grow in spiritual maturity. That's why he says, chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to what? To maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So three pairs listed right there in your outline. Faith and repentance, washings, and laying on of hands, resurrection, and eternal judgment. Before I go there, let me answer a question that might immediately come to your mind that you might be asking from verse 1. What does it mean to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ in order to move on to maturity? Because it sure seems like having a robust, robust understanding of a Christ would only help you in moving on toward maturity which it does, just like we're getting in the book of Hebrews, right? How Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, our source of salvation, being our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek and guarantor of a better covenant, offering a better sacrifice and securing for us a greater salvation. So obviously, to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ does not mean to leave Christ behind altogether, but instead to leave the basics about salvation behind, including the three things listed in your bulletin, faith and repentance, washings and laying on of hands, resurrection and eternal judgment. And he tells us why. He says, because these things are foundational. Verse one says, not laying again a foundation of these things, but pressing on to maturity. So the foundational idea of number one, faith and repentance, that salvation is not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith is never alone, but always includes turning from sin and walking in obedience. That's what repentance is. And leaving the foundational idea of number two, washings and laying on of hands. Now, it's hard to know exactly what that is, but we know it's foundational to their salvation. So if it's a critical component of Judaism, they need to leave it behind in order to grab a hold of faith in Christ and repentance from dead works. And embrace number three, Christ's resurrection that saves them from eternal judgment. So unless Jesus stands as your great high priest, offering himself as a sacrifice for your sin, you cannot and you will not stand before the throne of God or receive mercy to help you in time of need. So obviously, leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ does not mean leaving Christ behind, but instead leaving the basics of salvation behind. The same basics that they heard and they believed when they came to faith in the first place. That's why verse 2 says, not laying again a foundation of these elementary doctrines, the basics, but moving on to maturity. You see, I think it's helpful for us to just Think about foundations, right? Foundations are good and necessary for building. But once you've laid the foundation, you don't lay the foundation again. Instead, you stand on the foundation and you build on the foundation with constant progress. 
So growth and maturity, layers and floors, onward and upward with tangible progress that is evident and obvious for everybody to see. If you look at a building, you know that it's going up. It's evident and it's obvious. They don't build the foundation, tear it down and rebuild it. These dear believers heard the gospel. They repented of their sins. They rejected works-based righteousness and embraced Christ's resurrection that saves them from God's judgment. Now they need to stand on those truths, build on those truths, and use those truths in order to discern good from evil, verse 14, so that they might persevere in the faith. The author absolutely intends to teach them all of these things so that they might mature, right? That's why verse 3 says, and this we will do, but only if God permits. So the author is totally committed to teaching them the glorious truths about Jesus, all sorts of glorious truths. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. But he can't possibly, by his own effort, move them forward and make them spiritually mature in Christ. That's a work that only God can do. But God does use means, doesn't he, in order to do it. And those means include loving warnings about the consequences of not maturing in your faith in Christ. Let me just pause for a moment. You might be sitting there thinking, you know, in my mind, it's just me and Jesus. So can I just have a basic understanding of salvation in Christ? Can I, can I just have that basic understanding and stay there my whole life in the basics? Well, the author of Hebrews is saying, no, you really can't. Now, obviously, we all start out with a basic understanding of salvation, but you're not intended to stay there. And the truth is, why would you want to stay there? That would be like taking a bite of an appetizer and then deciding to pass on the rest of your meal, including the rest of the appetizer and a wonderful steak and a side salad and mashed potatoes. Why would you not want that? Right? You, you, you wouldn't take a bite of the appetizer, then see the steak and say, yeah, no, I'm good. No, you would keep moving on. And the same is true with Jesus. So I appeal to you, have a basic understanding that you're a sinner in Adam, that you deserve God's wrath. But because Christ is your great high priest, he offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for your sin so that by faith in Christ and Christ alone, you can be reconciled to God for all eternity. Know that, believe that, but don't stay there. Build on that. Grow from there. See it, but then desire to see it with greater clarity that it impacts you in greater and greater ways as you move on to maturity. When you truly believe that, your relationship with Christ will not be stagnant. Your understanding, your growth, your passion, your desire to, to know him more will not be stunted. Instead, you'll be like a teenage boy. I have two of them in my house. They eat us out of house and home. Growing, maturing, bigger, faster, stronger. Why is that necessary in our spiritual well-being? Well, so that we might persevere in the faith. Because 
we've responded rightly to A, this loving word of rebuke. Now, number two, a loving word of warning. Verse four, the author says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to condemn. Now, let me just start by acknowledging these are some of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. In addition, the author of Hebrews only uses the phrase, it is impossible, four times in the book of Hebrews. So chapter 6, verse 18, he says, it is impossible for God to lie. Chapter 10, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Chapter 11, verse 6, it's impossible to please God without faith. And right here, chapter 6, verse 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. So our passage focuses on the impossibility of restoring a person to faith and repentance after they've fallen away from the things of God. So in my mind, the best way to walk through a passage like this is by asking questions. And you see them right there in your outline. So let's start with A, who's the audience? Now, it seems clear to me that the warning is addressed to believers. And I say that for a number of reasons. The first is that's consistent with all the other warning passages in the book of Hebrews. For example, chapter 2, verse 1, the author says, We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So the author includes himself in many of the warnings. And he's clearly a Christian. Other times, like chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you, brothers, to fall away from the living God. So in many of the warnings, he refers to the audience as believers, as brothers, as the beloved, which is true right here in chapter 6. In fact, look at verse 9. He says, same audience, same people who get the warnings. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So first reason that he's writing to Christians is the context. Second reason is the content itself. I mean, just look at how he describes them in verse 4. He says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Who does that sound like to you? Doesn't that sound like a description of a Christian? It sure does to me. You know, Charles Spurgeon said every, or said even a child reading this passage would say that the persons intended by it must be Christians. 
Because if the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians, I do not see how he could have used more explicit terms than the terms that he's used right here in these verses. For how can a man be enlightened, taste of the heavenly gift, and be a partaker of the Holy Spirit without being a child of God? Tom Schreiner brings even more clarity. He says the gift of the Holy Spirit is the quintessential evidence that a person is a Christian. So who's the audience? I would say without reservation, he's writing to Christians. And yet he's clearly warning them. Now, why would he do that if he's persuaded that these people really are Christians? Why would he warn them? Well, I would say because true believers at times need a loving word of rebuke and need a loving word of warning. They need the rebuke. They need the warning in order to persevere in the faith. God uses the rebuke and the warning so that they might respond to it and persevere in the faith. Which brings us to be the impossible. What is the warning exactly? Well, it's really the same warning we've heard several times already in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 1, do not drift away. Chapter 2, verse 12, do not fall away from the living God. Chapter 3, verse 13, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 6 is just more of the same. In fact, in verse 1, the author commands, do not lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Verse 6, he says, do not fall away from all that you've experienced in and through the Lord Jesus and by the work of the Holy Spirit. So what is the warning? Well, the warning is, do not fall away. Which means it's a warning against apostasy. So a warning against rejecting Christ and turning back to the Old Testament covenant. Again, remember the context. These believers, these Jewish Christians are being persecuted and they're being tempted to return to Judaism because if they revert back to the Old Testament covenant, they stop getting persecuted. So he's writing to encourage those who are struggling and those who are being persecuted to not abandon the salvation that they know in their heads and believe in their hearts but are currently struggling to live out in their lives. So he's pleading with them to not experience all these glorious, divinely given things, being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gifts, sharing in the spirit, and experiencing the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, just to turn back. Now of all times, and reject it. Or as he says in verse 6, to fall away. And why is that such a big deal? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? Because that's the impossible. Look at it again, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of someone who is truly a Christian, who then falls away to restore them. That's the impossible, to restore them again to repentance. Why? Well, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So the whole point is that if these Jewish believers who converted from Judaism to Christianity so, so, so joyfully heard the good news of the gospel, they've embraced it by faith, repented of their sins, they believe in Jesus, now suddenly to decide 
that the consequences of that glorious salvation are too great. The cost is too high. The persecution is too hard. So if they knowingly, consciously decide to go back to Judaism, it's not only impossible to restore them again to repentance, but they will be crucifying again the Lord of glory. Now talk about a graphic illustration to get your point across. But just think about it for a second. Because who were the ones who crucified Jesus in the first place? It was the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. So the image is so appropriate. Because he's saying, if you choose to to knowingly, consciously go back to that way of thinking, then you're essentially going back to that day the day of Christ's crucifixion, and you're deciding to yell all over again, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Do you understand? That's why it's impossible for restoration, because it's not an ignorant rejection of Christ, but a conscious contempt, essentially crucifying him all over again. So be clear. What's the impossible? The impossible is embracing a Christless salvation. Because that salvation doesn't exist. There is no salvation apart from Christ. That's the impossibility. One commentator says it this way, to repudiate Christ, so to apostatize, to reject Jesus, to crucify him again, is to move forward without Jesus being the foundation of your salvation, which means... You're embracing the impossible. There is no salvation apart from Christ. Now, as we move forward, what's so glorious in verses 7 and 8 is the illustration actually drives home the interpretation. And it answers our last question, see, what is the result? So if you would follow along as I read verses 7 and 8 again, this is the illustration. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now notice carefully the details. Because this is a picture of how rain that falls on the same field can bring about two different kinds of results. Meaning land that receives rain can either produce a crop that is useful and fruitful and therefore receives a blessing, or land that receives rain can produce a crop that is thorns and thistles and therefore is not useful, not fruitful, and if you look at verse 8, is worthless. Look at verse 8. He says it's worthless and near to being cursed. So not cursed, but near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. So the illustration is a warning itself. Coming right out of passages like Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27, which these people would have known really well. That says, if you bear thorns and thistles, you will be judged. Your efforts burned up and you will experience the wrath of God for all eternity. But if you bear fruit by the grace of God, with the help of God, for the glory of God, then as a result, you'll be blessed by God 
for all eternity. So it's clear, isn't it? That it's not driven by how good you start, but instead it's driven by how you respond to the warning. Meaning, if you neglect the warning, you'll bear thorns and thistles and experience God's wrath for all eternity. But if you respond rightly to the warning, right here, right now, you'll bear fruit. By God's grace, with God's help, and for God's glory. And you will persevere in the faith, firm to the end, and go to heaven when you die, will you experience God's blessings for all eternity. So that's the loving word of warning. Dear believer, the word of God is warning you to not apostatize from the faith. You must not count on the way you started, but focus on where you're at right here, right now, and where you're headed. So what matters today is not what you did in the past, how good of a Christian you used to be, but instead what you do with Jesus today. Let today be the day of salvation for you. And let today continue to be the day of salvation for you. That's the only question that matters. Is your faith in Christ right now? Are you devoted to him? Are you committed to him? Are you diligently pursuing your relationship with him? Are you waking up in the morning and trusting his finished work on the cross for you? Does that motivate you? Is that what drives you? I love Jesus, and I want to live for Jesus. He died for my sins. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. And I just want to live for his glory. Or are you neglecting this glorious salvation? That the author is arguing so adamantly for? Are you tired of hearing of Jesus? Are you dull? Are you sluggish? Let me just say, if you're even tempted to consider the option of walking away, let me appeal to you to listen to the warning not only in Hebrews 6, but in Hebrews 10.26, he comes back to this same idea. It actually brings clarity on what he's saying here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, the author says, For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fire that will consume. Verse 31 says, for it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And the glory of the gospel is you don't have to. 
as long as you keep putting your faith in Jesus. So I appeal to you to do just that. Keep repenting, keep believing, and keep being saved. You have been saved, you are being saved, and if you persevere in your faith, you will be saved all the way to eternity. But what if you don't? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, and verse 14, then you were never saved in the first place. Now let me pause to just give you a personal example. Just to put a sharp point on what I'm saying, what I believe the book of Hebrews is saying. So what if in the years to come, Steve Theo commits apostasy and falls away from Christ? I want you to know that if that happens, it's not because I haven't loved the word of God or experienced the spirit of God or seen the miracles of God. I have. But if I suddenly lose complete interest in the things of God, becoming more captivated with making money than making converts, if I suddenly need a new wife or neglect my children, or decide that the church is suddenly not the manifold wisdom of God that he, Ephesians 3 tells me that it is, but suddenly it becomes a drag on my time and a burden. Or the incarnation of Christ or the resurrection of Christ is no longer a glorious truth, but in my mind becomes a lie. And there's really only one way to live, and that's to eat and drink and be merry because that's all there is. If that happens, then know this to be true. Steve Thiel was mightily deceived during the first 46 years of his life. So whatever was going on, it wasn't true faith. Instead, my faith was a facade. My fidelity to my wife, a temporary commitment. My preaching, a desire for personal glory. My prayers, an attempt to get God to supply the resources for all of my vain aspirations. If you looked at that situation, you would say from your perspective, he fell away. And from your perspective, that would be true. He professed to know Christ, and then he no longer believes in him. But the Bible would say, from God's perspective, I never knew you. I wasn't truly a believer. Do you hear what I'm saying? Can you hold those things together? So this is meant to be a loving word of warning. A loving word of warning. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Take a look at your own heart to make sure that you're truly in the faith. To make sure that you're doing what you're doing for the right reasons. 
that you're doing it because you love the Lord Jesus and you want to live for his glory rather than doing it by your own efforts for your own glory. Those are two radically different things. Examine your heart. Make sure that you're truly in the faith. That what you're trusting in, in your heart of hearts, on a daily basis, is Jesus alone. My hope is in Jesus. Which, by the way, is exactly what the author of Hebrews believes about these people. He believes that their faith is in Jesus. That's why he doesn't stop with a loving word of rebuke and a loving word of warning, but with number three, a loving word of encouragement. He's not trying to put insecurity in the hearts of Christians, but instead he wants to spur them on to love and good deeds, not being dull of hearing or sluggish in their pursuit of Christ, but diligent, alert, aggressive, and earnest, especially in this specific context, so that they may have full assurance of hope right up until God takes them home to glory, which may be coming sooner than they realize. Just look at what the author says, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, people who I love, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Just a couple of things before we close. We will come back to these verses next week, but just a couple of quick things to grab a hold of. The first is A, the reality of assurance. Because earlier in this text, it sure sounded like there was really no reason for assurance, right? I mean, they're dull of hearing. They're more like students than, they're more like children than teachers. They're more like students than teachers, children than adults. And they're spiritually immature, right? Basically, he's saying they're not really getting it. They're not understanding. They're not grabbing a hold of the basics of salvation. You look at that and you're like, I don't know how you would have a lot of assurance there. But here you get a much fuller picture, don't you? Verse 9 gives us the reality of assurance. That even though the author speaks this way with words of rebuke and words of warning, he feels sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. So he's confident that their faith is in Jesus. And that if it's true faith, if it's genuine faith, he does not think that they're going to fall away. But instead, he wholeheartedly believes that they're going to hear this warning and they're going to respond to it. So instead of resenting it, rejecting it, and claiming there's no way to talk to a born-again Christian like that, he doesn't believe that's how they're going to respond. Instead, he believes they'll say something more like this, which is what I hope and pray that you're thinking this morning. Thank you so much for warning us. We know that we're fragile. We know that we're prone to wander. We know that we're prone to leave the God we love. 
So thank you for keeping us alert. Thank you for challenging us to be diligent in our pursuit of Christ. Thank you for calling us to fight the good fight of faith. Thank you for calling us to trust in the promises of God. To love God and to love the people of God. Which, by the way, is exactly what they're doing. That's be the reason for assurance. Because it's crystal clear they're loving God and they're loving the people of God. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook what? Your work and your love that you have shown for his name, God's name, in serving the saints, the people of God, as you still do. Now, as soon as you hear that, you might be thinking to yourself, that sounds like works-based righteousness because they're working and they're loving and in God's justice, he's weighing and measuring to see whether or not they've done enough. That couldn't be further from the truth. Look at verse 12. It highlights being imitators of who? Those who have faith and patience. He's going to talk all about it in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. So this is a faith that works itself out. Out in what? Out in a love for God and a love for the people of God. So as a result of not being sluggish or dull of hearing, but being diligent to pursue the Lord Jesus, we become a people who have an insatiable love for God and an insatiable love for the people of God. And as a result of those two things, you can have full assurance of hope, firm to the end, and be certain that you're going to heaven when you die. Here's the glory of God's justice. And when he looks down on true believers in Christ, he says, what I see here is not human performing that makes me repay them with my salvation. But instead, he sees a needy people who are looking away from themselves to the all-satisfying glory of God. By the way, that's what it means to love God's name. Verse 10 he looks down and he sees a people caring for the saints of God because they care about the glory of God. And he sees hearts filled up with joy because of the promises of God. Verse 12. And as a result, God is committed. He's committing himself. He's promising to work in and through your lives so that you might have full assurance of hope. Unwavering hope. Firm to the end. Where does that leave us this morning? Well, I hope and pray that it leaves us being a people who are grateful for a word of rebuke and a word of warning. That we don't listen to our feelings when we hear passages like this and react by saying, I just don't like what I'm hearing. So I'm going to reject it. Not only the message, but the messenger and cancel out the word of God altogether. I pray that we don't respond like that. But instead, I pray that we would see that these words are motivated by love and kindness and a desire for us to be all the more diligent, earnest in our pursuit of Christ. And as a result, to love God and to love the people of God all the more because that's where hope and assurance are found. So I pray that we would listen to the word of encouragement, that we might be all the more diligent to pursue Jesus. Because the author of Hebrews wants you to feel strong and confident, secure and bold, and ready to lay down your life for the sake of the ministry and the glory of God's name.
So as a result of this loving warning against apostasy, he does not want you to cower in fear and uncertainty about your future salvation. That's not his goal. But instead, he wants you to bank your assurance of hope on the mercy of God and the justice of God. The mercy of God to reach out to the utterly unworthy to give you faith and patience. And the justice of God to uphold the honor of his great name by empowering the faith of his people to keep believing, to keep trusting, to keep working, to keep loving, and to keep resting, and to keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Dear believer, you have every reason in the world to be encouraged this morning that if you're not dull of hearing or sluggish in your pursuit of Christ, but persevering in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, loving God and loving the people of God, if that's you, dear believer, you have every reason in the world to have full assurance of hope that you too will inherit the promises of God and the glory of eternal life. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to impact the people of God. A word of rebuke, a word of warning, and a word of encouragement. Lord, for those whose faith is firmly in the Lord Jesus, I pray that they would be encouraged. I pray that they would be stirred up and all the more diligent to pursue the Lord Jesus by faith. That they would be building, standing on the promises of God and moving forward in their faith, trusting God, seeing the Lord Jesus with more and greater clarity. And as a result, living their life for the glory of God, loving God, loving the people of God, loving the lost, standing firm, persevering in the faith. Lord, I also pray for those who examine their heart and find it wanting. I pray that they would not respond in frustration or irritation or cancel out the word of God, but I pray that they would respond in faith, that they would see their only hope of salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death his burial, his resurrection. I pray that they would believe in him this morning. Let today be the day of salvation for them. They'd repent. They'd believe. They'd love him. And they'd live for his glory. By the work of your spirit, you would cause them to grow, stand firm, and persevere in the faith. Lord, do that good work for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.